We'll be in Genesis chapter 6 this morning. And if we were to rank the weirdest passages of the Bible, this would be up there. Some of you may have read it before. Some of you may sit there going, what is he talking about? And why has nobody ever told us about this before? It's very strange. It's a, uh, it's a funny twist of faith that I was not supposed to preach this sermon on this passage, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> here we are, and I received that from the Lord. Genesis tells us that the triune God made spiritual beings to govern the heavens and humans to govern the earth. He planted a garden temple called Eden, where the man and the woman would work together to bless the world. But all too quickly, this original goodness was lost, not just misplaced, but stolen by rebel spiritual beings. And while the creator promised that a serpent stomper would come, the humans were exiled from the garden, along with the fallen angels. And as we'll see, the troubles with these rebel spirits had only just begun. And as I said at the beginning, we're looking at an otherworldly, frequently overlooked uh, passage of scripture. It was stunning to me, as, which I didn't have a whole lot of time, or not nearly as much time as normal to prepare for this, but it was interesting as I was reading different study Bibles and commentaries, how frequently they either said nothing or said something to the effect of, this is so strange that it will never benefit your church. And it's like, well... I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And I'll say more about why I think that in a minute. In a minute. But it is very strange. And I promise we'll get to Jesus at the end. So just stick with me if I may lose you through some of the twists and turns here. But let's read this together and I think it'll be up on the screen. Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown. You know, they never made a VeggieTales about this one. <laughs> and I, I think I can understand why. This is a notoriously difficult bit of scripture to understand. A story about angelic beings impregnating human women and birthing giant heroes has no place in our modern scientific worldview. It's very hard for us to know what to do with a story like this. This is the sort of thing that makes non-Christians think that we're lunatics. <laughs> You Give it a shot. Now, all of us aren't necessarily going into the office, but tomorrow morning, be like, have you heard the good news about how once upon a time evil angels came and had babies with all these human women, and, and they'll have no idea what you're talking about. It's very strange. Exactly. This is one of those times when we are confronted by the deeply supernatural worldview of Scripture. And you may wonder whether it is a better idea to just skip this one. Maybe the commentaries and the study Bibles were right. Well, they're wrong, and here's why. Because Clayton and I are committed, as your pastors, to the idea that the entire Word of God is for the entire people of God. 
There is no such thing as a passage that we should ignore. Obviously, there are passages that may require a bit more care and explanation, and you'll notice that there's far more explanation in this sermon than I think we normally do. But there is no passage of Scripture that we're meant to ignore or to glide over. In the same way, there's no passage of Scripture that is only for those of us with the time or the skill to study ancient languages and cultures. The entire Word of God is for the entire people of God. That is why we preach some of the weird stuff. That's why we spent time in Leviticus. That's why we preached Matthew's genealogy. That's why we're doing what we're doing today. The Bible, so I think, and I think most of us share this belief, the Bible is the inspired word of God. And that means that everything in here is something that the Lord wants us to receive. And absolutely, some of it is easier to receive than, than others of it. But everything in here is something he wants us to receive. If we ignore parts of scripture, we're shutting our ears to what God has to say. And we're actually warping our understanding of his will. So there is therefore tremendous value, wisdom, and instruction for us, even in very strange or disturbing passages like this one. So I want to walk briefly through it and point out some of these things. And obviously, much, there's much more that could be said than can be said. And so as you have questions, you're very welcome to come to Sunday School next week and ask them. Or if you don't want to do that, you can just ask me anyway. But I imagine there will be some things that you want to hear more about, but we just lack the time to, to dig into all of it in the same way. But I want to walk briefly through the passage and set before you three considerations that I think flow from it. So just to kind of set the stage here, last week Clayton talked about Genesis chapter 4. Cain is enticed, he's tricked by the power of sin to kill his brother Abel. And by the end of chapter 4, we see that the cycle of vengeance has reached a fever pitch. And despite that, in Genesis chapter 5, we get a genealogy, a list of babies being born. The promise of God carries forward even in the midst of all this wickedness and vengeance. Chapter 5 ends with the birth of Noah. Noah's name is derived from the Hebrew word for rest. He's described as someone who will bring rest. So even in the midst of the stolen kingdom, Yahweh gives his people rest. But the rebel spirits can't have that, and so we see them launch their next assault, their next offensive against Yahweh and his image bearers in Genesis chapter 6. And the sons of God here is a key phrase. Every other time it appears in the Old Testament, it's referring to angelic beings. There has been an alternate interpretation in church history that the sons of God are referring to the children of Seth, Adam and Eve's righteous son. I'm not compelled by that argument. Again, if you want to know more about why that is, you can ask me later. But every other time sons of God appears in the Old Testament, it's talking about spiritual beings. And what we see in verse 1 is not a description of consensual coupling. What this is, is a record of rape, of sexual warfare, a hijacking of human bloodlines to steal Yahweh's promise. The most humiliating way to destroy your enemies isn't just to defeat them on the battlefield, but to ensure their bloodlines are cut off so there won't be any more generations of enemies. We see, we see that strategy frequently throughout the ancient world and still today. This is especially true in the biblical story since Yahweh's promise is riding on children being born. 
We see the rebel spirit sin in the same pattern set by Eve with the forbidden fruit. Eve saw that the fruit was good or beautiful. That's the same word in Hebrew, good and beautiful. She took it and she ate it. In the same way, these rebel spirits saw that the human women were good, they were beautiful. They took them and they ate them, used and abused them. This is a gravely destructive act, not just in the context of Genesis 6, but any time a man or woman is violated by another. People are people. They have dignity and value. They're not objects to be used. And by breaking the boundary between humans and spiritual beings, by treating women as objects, these rebel spirits instigated the disaster of the Great Flood. Verse 3, if you look at it, if you're using a physical Bible, you'll see that almost every phrase of that verse has a little note that the translation is contested all the way along the chain. And I think that what verse 3 is telling us, and we don't have, again, we don't have time to get in the weeds on this, but that Yahweh's spirit, his creative spirit that had brought the universe into existence, he's been grieved by the sin of both the spiritual beings and the humans, and so in 120 years, he's hitting the reset button on the cosmos, right? It's a countdown to the great flood rather than a limit on human lifespan. And I think the, the best, really the best argument for that translation is that a whole lot of people after this verse continue to live longer than 120 years. So if it's a limit, I'm not sure it doesn't seem to be very effective. So I think really what verse 3 is saying is because they have done this in 120 years, the great flood is coming. We may wonder why he waited that long. But I think that knowing the character of God revealed in Jesus, verse 3 is a witness to his great patience and grace, even in the face of such despicable wrongdoing. And later on, I believe in the book of Jude, it talks about Noah being a preacher of repentance. So for 120 years, God waited and gave people time to repent. And then in verse 4, we're told about the offspring of this violation. The odd and vaguely sinister word Nephilim is a word for giants. The monstrous distinction-defying offspring of the assault remembered in our passage. And if you haven't read much of the Old Testament, you may feel like you just like missed a step. <laughs> You're like, wait, giants? Now, I'll say more about that in a few minutes, but giants are actually set up as the villains throughout many of the stories of the Old Testament. I'll say more about that in a moment. These giants were the legendary heroes of the ancient world. So what do we make of all of this? The story reveals the violence and hatred with, with, with which the rebel angels regard us. It shows why Yahweh inflicted the flood. Yes, human wrongdoing was a part of it, but it was also, again, the invasion of rebel angels and the invasion of sin into our world. It frames the coming conflicts of God's people as they conquer the promised land. Ultimately, I think we find a clue to the form Yahweh's final redemption will take. A union of human and divine. A carpenter from Nazareth who, rather than being a monstrous, tyrannical giant, is an obedient, humble Israelite. A new David standing against the roaring Goliath of sin. These are brutal, disturbing verses, and we don't need to try and cover that over. 
And while the ancient supernatural context may feel very distant from us, I think we can see reflections of our world here. Here and now, power and evil often and frequently go hand in hand. Innocent women are hurt and harmed. We see, we take, we eat. Eat, often without thought to the consequences. So I think these verses have something to tell us about God's revelation of sin, of the nature of spiritual warfare, and the nature of salvation. Sin, spiritual warfare, and salvation. And we'll take each of those in turn. And this passage, once again, and we've seen this multiple times in these opening chapters of Genesis, that it's trying to tell us that sin, in its nature, is a tyrannical, alien power that has invaded our lives. Yes, humans disobey Yahweh's commands, but so far in the story, they only do that when they have been tricked or enticed by the power of sin. We are complicit in sin's rule, but only because it has power over us. Our bad choices are symptoms of a vast conspiracy of evil that is beyond our ability to fix. The stolen kingdom of sin includes our human institutions, our political structures, military powers. And verse 4 points to this. It says of the Nephilim, the giants, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, if you're reading the Bible up to now, you would think, well, who, well, who are they talking about? There's only been a handful of people and none of them were giants, none of them were monsters. What is being referenced here? What this is, is it's a nod to the stories and the legends of the empires around Israel, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, Greece, Persia. All of these other nations thought that their royal families, their kings, were descended from the gods, that their religious systems, their pagan temples and sacrifices had been given to them by the gods. They told stories about figures like Hercules and Gilgamesh, supermen, who had been birthed by the gods and then ran around and had different adventures and hurt a lot of people. Genesis looks at all of that and says that it's a lie. These kings, these religions, these power structures didn't come from the gods. They're not good. They came from demons. They're birthed out of the power of sin. And just as we as individuals are corrupted by sin, so our institutions and structures are as well. Our companies, our schools, our technologies, our governments. Even an institution made up of basically decent people, and many of those exist, can still work great evil. Think about how often churches cover up abuse, all for good reasons. Nobody's intending to be a villain, and yet these things happen. This is why we cannot look to any human power or institution to save us. You may not have heard, but there's an election happening right now. I read somewhere that it's supposed to end on Tuesday, but we'll see how it goes. As witnesses to Christ, we are to be politically, as politically engaged as he leads us to be, and that'll be different for all of us. But we must not ever ascribe to any candidate the power that only belongs to the Lord. Jesus saves. No other name goes on that sign. We should not give to any earthly country or power our ultimate and highest allegiance. 
That's not to diminish at all the importance of good government or the many pressing issues facing our society, but it is to remind us that it is all temporary, and even the best of human power and skill is corrupted by sin. It doesn't mean it's not worth trying to work with what we've got, but we have to remember that corruption of sin is there. And because sin is a bigger problem than we can fix, we need the gospel first, but we also need the fellowship of believers for this fight. And I said this a few weeks ago when we were preaching on the fall and the lies of the serpent, that we must and we need to confess our sins to one another and be reminded of God's forgiveness. If sin were chiefly about my bad behavior, then it would be my job to act better, to be better, to try and conform my behavior to people's expectations, right? But what the Bible is telling us is that sin is not chiefly about your bad behavior. It includes it, but it is so much bigger than you can manage to do anything about, or any of us can manage to do anything about. Jesus died not because you need to do better. Madness. Jesus died because that was how the power of sin would be defeated. That's what had to happen for the power of sin to be defeated. Confession is less a time of admitting the mistakes we made, although we need to be honest and we need to share what we're led to share, but it really is a report on the movements of the enemy. That really is what it is. Right? If sin is a power coming down on top of us rather than just the bad things that I do, then we don't have to pretend to be better than we are. And I think that Christians always struggle with this because we know there's a standard. We know there's a very high standard the Lord calls us to. And none of us meet it. We do for about 90 minutes on Sunday morning. And even then, occasionally, depending on what happens. And it's not that we all get in here and lie. Of course not. You know, we're, we're celebrating. We're here for the Lord. We're in his presence. We're being encouraged. That's all good. But let none of us think. And it grieves me that this is true. None of, us, none of us think that we have to hide the things that are going on in our lives from our fellow Christians. Brothers and sisters, is there someone in your life to whom you can truly confess? Is there someone who knows the ways the enemy comes after you? And if the answer is no, then by all means, Get yourself a confession buddy with whom you can fight sin together, side by side, and resist its power. Our passage also reveals the nature of spiritual warfare. It sets up the Nephilim giants and the evil spirits in league with them as the great enemy that God's people will fight throughout the biblical story. Folks are often turned off by the violence in the Bible. And as well they should be. It can get quite violent and bloody. But notice who the Israelites actually fight as the story unfolds. They don't go after Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, these countries that enslave them and abuse them and conquer them. They never really fight them. Over and over again, the Israelites fight 
the giants, the terrible offspring of Genesis 6. Feel welcome to fact check me when you get home, but I assure you it's all there if you know what to look for. Right? The Israelites refused to enter the promised land in Numbers chapter 13 because the giants have built strongholds throughout the promised land. It makes sense that they're trying to colonize the promised land. They're trying to steal that as well. During Joshua's conquest, the only cities that they leveled are the cities ruled and populated by giants. Look it up. They leave other Canaanite and Gentile cities alone unless they come out and, you know, attack them. They only go after the cities that are populated or ruled by giants. When David steps forward as a champion of Israel, he fights a giant. And we all know that story. Goliath. As Paul would write centuries later, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The unified witness of the entire Bible is that other humans have never been the enemy of God's people. Other humans have never been the problem. From the beginning, the enemy has been the power of sin. Often, the power of sin will make other humans become the enemy. But again, as Paul's point in Ephesians 6, they're not the actual enemy. They're not the actual problem. From the beginning, the enemy has been the power of sin. So I think the second consideration we can take from this passage is to examine who your enemies are. Who do you hate? We wouldn't admit, maybe, to hating people. But who in your life do you hate? Who do you wish harm upon? Who do you want vengeance over for some wrong they did to you? If there are other humans on that list, my friends, we must repent. We must ask the Lord to reveal the true face of our enemy. The scripture tells us that it is never the other humans around us. This brings us to Jesus. I think the third and final lesson of this passage. Yahweh promised in Genesis chapter 3 that one day a baby would come who would be the serpent stomper. And Genesis 6, as we've seen, is a demonic campaign to steal and ruin that promise. But the rebel angels did not understand the extent, the lengths to which the Creator would go to redeem his image bearers. You see, Genesis 6 is a clue of what Yahweh's ultimate salvation would look like. Yahweh himself would take up a human body to redeem us, to stomp the serpent from inside the human family. Human beings are unique for a variety of reasons, as far as we know. We are the only creatures that are physical, right? We're made of stuff, but also spiritual. If you cut me open, don't, but if you were to do that, you would not find my soul Right? They can make images of my brain, but you can't find my mind, and the same is true for you. We are miraculous, fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says, physical and spiritual beings, the only ones that the Creator made. We reflect the goodness of our Creator in our wise management of creation, 
and we reflect the goodness of creation back to God in our offerings and sacrifices, work done to his glory. That's what it means to be human. And so it makes sense that our bodies, minds, and relationships are the major arena of spiritual battle. If the serpent can steal us, then he gets the rest of the kingdom thrown in. We often feel stifled or, what's the word? I guess just rebellious. As we often feel rebellious against all the laws and rules of the Bible. Why are they in there? Do we really have to read them? But each one of those is a signal that our choices matter immensely. Creation is either mended or ripped apart a little bit more based on our choices between good and evil, chaos and order, clean and unclean. And this is why Yahweh did not directly intervene in Adam and Eve's failure, but instead promised a human child to stop the serpent. It is this promise that the rebel angels tried to steal in Genesis 6. They were trying to hijack the unique role of humankind. But men and women remained God's image bearers. Despite all of this, they re we remained and remain his image bearers. And so when it was time for salvation, Jesus was born as a man, fully human and fully Yahweh. Jesus walked our streets, healed our diseases, freed men and women from the bondage of sin and Satan. And it is striking to consider what the evil spirits were up to in the days of Jesus. Over and over again, he rescued people who were being taken over by rebel angels. These ancient enemies of God still trying to get themselves bodies so they could steal God's people away. In John, John chapter 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When the powers of darkness came for him, Jesus did lay down his life for his friend's sake, for our sake. He was raised up like a lightning rod, inviting the powers of evil to strike. Second Corinthians says that Jesus became sin. He absorbed it somehow in all of its destructive power. And in offering himself up in the place of criminals, Jesus tricked sin into thinking that it had gotten him. We'll develop that theme more next winter and in spring as we look at the stories of Jacob and Isaac. In offering himself up as a criminal, Jesus tricked sin into thinking it had gotten him. But then, as Romans 8 says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see that in the likeness. It was a disguise. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for a sin offering, God condemned sin right there in the human flesh of Jesus. Jesus was not an unwilling victim of the Father's wrath. Don't let people tell you otherwise. I think that's often a, a criticism that non-Christians will bring to the gospel is that, you know, why did Jesus have to die or why, you know, these things. It's like, well, it's not that he didn't know what was going to happen. He was part of the plan. He was bait. For in striking Jesus' body, the serpent's own head was crushed on the cross. And Jesus died with the words, it is finished on his lips. Jesus has triumphed over sin and death, brothers and sisters. He did it. 
It happened. Our righteousness, our freedom, our victory are only found in him. And church, let us stand firm in this grace and good news of God. Resist the evil one. Flee from temptation. Silence lies with scripture. Do not allow yourself to be, well, some, some of us don't have a choice whether we're going to be physically isolated, but do not allow yourself to be spiritually and relationally isolated in this season. Fight for friendship. Fight for the fellowship of this church family. These next few months are going to be very difficult, I think, for churches around the world in different ways. Are we being diligent in prayer? Are we building up and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ? I urge you to do so if you're not. I urge you to do so if you're not. We were talking in a young adult group, I don't remember when, it was a few weeks ago. But there's the story in the Gospel of Luke where somebody comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus turns to him and says, let the dead bury their own dead. You either come with me now or you can go back to the funeral. We read that and we go, what in the world? And I remember a few years ago, back when I was in China, we were reading that passage with some students. Of course, it was the first time they'd ever heard it. And one of the, the boys, the guy, sat back and he's like, you know, Jesus must have thought that what he was doing was the most important thing happening in the world. You know, and me and my fellow missionary kind of sat back and we were like, yeah, 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 you got it. <laughs> what Jesus is doing is the most important thing happening in the world. Let's not forget that, brothers and sisters. I'll close with words from Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm. 